Oh, my brethren, you need to get rid of anything in your mind that's distracting you, and let's rejoice in the Word of God this morning. Amen. We are Bible Christians, which means that our Christianity is based in the Bible, our religion is based in the Bible, and we want to rejoice in the book that God has given us. It is a treasure. It is our life. It is our righteousness. It is our good if we'll keep it and obey it. It ought to be spoken of in our homes. It ought to be the theme of the breakfast table, the supper table. We ought to talk about it whenever we see an event. We ought to compare all things to the Word of God. We ought to rejoice in it. It's the answer to all our perplexities and difficulties of life as men have found. And I hope that you'll rejoice in it this morning with me again. Amen. Let me remind you, and I'll not take long doing it, but the Bible says to prove all things. Right. We don't have a religion that is afraid of proof, nor do we have a religion that cannot be proven. Right. Christianity, of all religions, has more authenticity and proofs in the universe than any other, because the others have none. Amen. And Christianity has many, and the Word of God has many. And it's with great, great confidence that I preach this sermon and series to you, and I hope that it's with great confidence you believe it and receive it. Amen. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Right. That's a New Testament commandment to all the saints of God. We don't believe just because Grandma believed. We don't believe just because our nation has made it a state religion. Neither of those cases are true with us. We believe in Jesus Christ of Nazareth as being the Son of the living God because the Holy Bible tells us so. And we believe the Holy Bible was written by God because it has at least 22 proofs that I want to give you. I want to remind you again of Isaiah 41 and 21. Produce your cause, saith the Lord. He wants all religions to produce their cause and bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. And let's do some religious comparisons. Let's compare some holy books and see which one wins. May the Lord bless us in this study. I want to remind you, and I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, but I want to remind you that the nature of our religion and the elevation of the Word of God is such that you cannot know the Bible, nor truly believe it, nor accept it, nor obey it, nor love it, without the grace of God changing your heart first. And if a pagan infidel that has a religion that doesn't involve the change of man's heart wants to conclude that that is some form of weak or circular reasoning then let it be so. Because that pagan infidel then has to look at humanity and say that man is born with a sufficient understanding and a heart able to understand his idea of a God. And I agree with him. Because his idea of a God is so base that humanity, which is so base, is able to recognize his God. But the God of the Bible cannot truly be recognized nor loved, nor can his word be identified and loved without God changing the heart first. Look at Luke chapter 16, where we have the, the story given by our Lord Jesus Christ of a rich man 
dying and going to hell. And in hell, he asks Abraham if Abraham wouldn't help save his brothers from coming to the same place. And Abraham says to him in verse 29 of Luke 16, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They've got the Bible. Let them read the Bible. Verse 30, he said, Nay, Father Abraham, they don't really like to read the Bible. They're more interested in making money and watching the NFL on TV than reading the Bible. But if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. If you'd send Lazarus back from the dead, they'd repent, and they wouldn't come to this place. And Abraham said unto him in verse 31, and this is such an important principle, and this is one of the principles of our religion. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. If the preaching of this book by dumb, illiterate fishermen does not affect your heart and soul and cause you to love Jesus Christ and want to obey Him, a man coming back from the dead will not affect your soul nor cause you to want to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Because by nature, the things of this book are foolishness to man. This book is written by the Spirit of God. The natural man has nothing to do with the Spirit of God. There's no connection there with spiritual things. They're all foolishness to him. Therefore, there's no amount of natural reasons that we can give a natural man to believe and accept a spiritual book. So why are you preaching these five messages, Pastor? Because I want to give reasons that the Bible identifies as marks of the truth of God's Word to spiritual men that your faith might be increased and you'll love the Bible a little bit more. I can't move a single natural man and there isn't a man alive that can move a natural man to become a spiritual man or to accept spiritual truth it doesn't matter what natural arguments he raises and uses and no matter how efficiently he uses them or how eloquently he uses them it's impossible and much much more could be said on that but you are going to be invited to take a peek into a 20 page outline that will have all those verses there for you you know, the, the Apostle Paul, the Evangelist Philip, and our Lord Jesus Christ never tried to prove the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. If you didn't believe in the inspiration of the Bible, they didn't have the time of day for you. Amen. When they went to a city, they went to the synagogue. Guess what? In a city like Corinth that was given over to the grossest forms of lascivious immorality... They would go to a synagogue where the Bible was being read. And in the synagogue, the Apostle Paul would stand up and he would explain how that those prophecies from the Old Testament applied to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He didn't go to the street corner and try to point out the scientific evidence of the Word of God to pagan Corinthians wandering from one brothel to the next. There isn't any evidence of that, not one time in the entire Word of God. Not one time. When the evangelist Philip is lifted up by the Spirit of God, now if that's being led by the Spirit, you know it is. 
That is truly being led by the Spirit. When the Spirit of God lifted up Philip the evangelist and he took him down into the desert, what did he take him to? Did he take him to some Arabian harem? Or did he take him to a man riding along in his chariot that was reading the Scriptures? And it's a man who already believed the Scriptures. And he explained the Scriptures. If a man cannot recognize that the Holy Bible with a little bit of reading and a little bit of teaching is not the Word of God then I can help you buy time. Leave him alone. He's a fool. He's been left in his natural state by God. Because when God has changed a man's heart, guess what he did? And it was mentioned in the prayer by our brother this morning. God has written his law in his heart. And when he hears it preached, it matches up in his mind. Because his heart says, that is the truth. I love that. That answers everything. I'm so thankful to hear that. There is within him a welling up of appreciation and acceptance of what he's hearing through his ear. The Apostle Paul would say in Romans chapter 10, and I can't go long on this point, but he would say in Romans chapter 10, the word of faith which we preach is nigh thee. You don't have to go to heaven looking for it, and you don't have to go to hell looking for it. It's not far away. It's within you. It's in your heart and in your mouth. The word of faith which we preach. And so if a man doesn't have that, we can't move him. And so we're reduced to trusting the sovereign mercy of God and the salvation of men. And we preach to those that God has blessed to see the truth. The Bible assumes from beginning to end that a person worshiping a stump is as dumb and ignorant as the stump. There is no method for going to a man worshiping a stump and helping him worship the true and living God. Men that God has worked on their hearts, they don't worship stumps. The first great proof that the Bible was written by God is fulfilled prophecy, and I'm not even going to touch it today because we've touched it before. And you can touch it some more if you wish, because there's hundreds of them. There's, yay, there's thousands of fulfilled prophecies in the Word of God. And we're not going to look at its wisdom this morning because we've looked at it before. The Bible is full of wisdom. What aspect of wisdom do you want to take a look at? Do you want to go into the book of Proverbs and see wisdom for daily living? Do you want to go into Ecclesiastes and see a philosophy of life? So short. So powerful, so weighty, and so broad in all the subjects that the book of Ecclesiastes covers, and it comes to a very definite conclusion on how life ought to be lived. What a blessing. I mentioned those things last Sunday. We're not going to deal with its sublimity. And if you were a little confused by the the word sublimity, all it means is that something is sublime, which means it belongs to the highest regions of thought, reality, or human activity. It stands high above others by its nobility or grandeur. It is exceptionally beautiful. It affects the mind with a sense of overwhelming power. It's calculated to inspire awe and reverence. And that's the Word of God. It's sublime. It's so beautiful. And sometimes to tell the beauty of something, you need to compare it to something ugly. So read the Koran and then read the Bible. You'll understand how beautiful the Bible is and how sublime it is. There isn't anything sublime. There's no depth. There's no beauty. There's no richness to the Koran. It's an elementary, incoherent repetition of little statements about Allah. 
Just go read it and compare it to the, the middle, the chap, 10 chapters of Isaiah between Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 50. Amen. You say, could a natural man see the difference? It wouldn't matter if he did or not. It wouldn't help him. It wouldn't help him. We, we're not going to look at the history of the Word of God. We're not going to look at its spirituality. I've already mentioned that to you. The Bible is such a spiritual book from beginning to end. It's elevating our thoughts away from earth where human authors would have us think and elevates our thoughts to heaven because its author is God. Right. It's a very spiritual book. We're not going to look at its plainness. We're not going to look at its reasonableness. These are things we did last Sunday evening. Let us briefly review again its fruit. I want you to turn your Bibles now to Malachi. Malachi, the last book of your Old Testaments, and let's see another evidence for the Word of God. In Malachi chapter 1, the evidence here is fruit. And I've got many, many verses, but I believe that five sermons will be enough for you on this subject, which will be this morning and this evening. The Bible tells us to measure prophets by their fruit. By their fruits ye shall know them. And so you look at what's hanging off the tree of a religion. You look at the effect that it has in the morality of a nation. You look at the righteousness that it brings in a nation or a people or a church. You can measure all doctrine by its consequences in the lives of those that hear it and in the lives of those that preach it. By their fruits ye shall know it, know them. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7 verses 15 through 20. But look at Malachi chapter 1. I may have given you this last Sunday without showing you the passage, but I want to show it to you. I want you to see that God makes a difference among nations. And a nation that has God's word is a blessed nation. Look at Malachi chapter 1 verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say... Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom, that's Esau and his descendants, whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down, and they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. I wanted you to see those words. Your eyes will see that from the border of Israel, God's blessing was on one side, His judgment on the other. His love on one side, His hatred on the other. And it did not matter if those that were under the hatred and neglect of God thought to themselves, we are impoverished. It's true that we are a pitifully weak nation, but we are going to build ourselves up to be great. God says, I'll throw you down. And so there's a principle here in the Word of God that we're to look for fruit. And when we look for the fruits in nations, we find them. The Bible says righteousness exalteth a nation. And righteousness is taught in this book. And so America has been and is great 
because of the righteousness of God's word that has been freely taught and defended here in this country. Now we have changed as a nation. And there is no doubt about that. And this nation had better repent because God is going to judge it. But we want to pray for our nation that for the sake of the righteous within it, God will continue to preserve our nation. Consider Hinduism. Is there any need to look beyond this proof? Why would anyone want to read a Hindu Veda simply by taking a five-minute look at what's on the other side of the border of India? By any measure, by any measure, you have proof on a great big billboard that says our holy books are obviously ridiculous because look what they have done to our nation. Uh, I mean, what? listen, brethren, you don't, you don't know much about what's going on in India? Just go to your Internet then and find out a little bit about India. They haven't made any progress in the last 4,000 years. Right. No progress at all. No progress in sanitation. I mean, it's just pitiful. Their caste system and their dowry system and, the, and widows burning themselves to death and just ignorance. And you read there, they don't know whether to believe in one God, many gods, or no God. It doesn't matter whether you're an atheist, a monotheist, or a polytheist if you, to be a Hindu. All you are is trying to figure out your karma and determine when this cycle of being reincarnated as an animal is going to end. Pitiful. People starving to death while cows walk down the cattle, walk down the middle of their street because they wouldn't dare kill a cattle because it could be their uncle. Listen, where does blindness and darkness come from like that? From their holy books. And brethren, if it weren't for the grace of God, if it weren't for the grace of God, we'd be just like them. We'd be following along right behind that cow thinking that it was uncle trying to talk to it. If it wasn't for the grace of God who changes men's hearts and gives them his word. In the old days of the Old Testament, it was just that little tiny nation of Israel. God gave a book. He wrote it down on a mountain and sent Moses down from the mountaintop with a book and gave it to Israel, a very small nation. God said it was the smallest of all nations. And he ignored all the other nations. The nations of Canaan he wiped out, man, woman, and child. Egypt, he impoverished forever. Other nations, he didn't even have the time of day for them. He gave a little nation his word. And it was a blessing from God. And we must look at it as a blessing from God only because it is not an evidence of our inherent superiority. It's the inherent superiority of the word of God over their holy books. And it's the inherent superiority over the grace of God compared to karma that makes the difference. Should we go to Africa and try to learn from their oral traditions that maybe they have the holy religion? Maybe they have the word of God that's been communicated in the way of oral tradition. Would we start by asking a cannibal? What would we ask? Where would we go? Would we ask a witch doctor? The witch doctors have always been the religious leaders of those tribes. What would we ask? What problems are they going to solve? They can't solve their own problems. And on and on we could go. Are we going to go to the American Indian and ask him to help us understand the great spirit and his hope of the happy hunting ground? Are we going to smoke ourselves all winter around buffalo chips? What are we going to do? 
Listen, God's, God has light in his word. Light that shines down so that men can see and can understand and can make something round called a wheel so that they can put it on a cart or a chariot or a wagon and pull things. God's done that from the very first chapters of the book of Genesis. And to deny it is to be, intent, is to be willfully blind. God makes those differences. And I showed you from the word of God that we are to see that from the border of nations, there are differences made. And the differences are enormous. They're not slight differences. They are enormous differences. And so we can rule out a whole lot of holy books by the one measure of by their fruits ye shall know them. There is no light. So we come to the word of God again after looking at its fruit. Queen Victoria, who reigned over Britain for 64 years, the longest reign in British history from eight lived from 1819 to 1901, and when she was asked about the the blessing and the supremacy of the British Isles, she said that book, referring to the Bible, accounts for the supremacy of England, because that Bible was taught in the pulpits of that country. It was preached, it was read, there were tracts published, there were sermons printed, and they were disseminated, and that nation is the nation that printed the King James Bible and spread it abroad through the whole earth and had it translated into many different languages. Is the Bible the word of God? Did God write it? We can tell by its fruit, because where the Bible has gone, there has been the blessing of light and advancement and prosperity and morality and righteousness and social advances in in the formation of marriages and families and the blessings of orderliness. And on and on we can go. Witty inventions and equity and judgment and justice in their courts It all flows from following the word of God. And when a nation exalts the word of God, all those things follow. And when a nation has no word of God or denies the word of God, those institutions are in great peril. And they are in our nation right now because we've turned our back on the Bible. Let's go look at another aspect, another proof. The Bible is a very scientific book. So let's look at a few examples of science that God wrote in the Bible 3,500 years ago, if it's Moses that wrote them, 3,000 years ago, if it's David or Solomon, or 2,500 years ago, if it's one of the prophets. I want you to remember that God knows about science because, after all, he created everything. And he created all the laws and orders for things as they relate to each other. And he knows so much about science that in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20, he warned Timothy of science falsely so-called. Isn't that amazing? Can you think? can, Can you think this morning with me? Can you think of a shun word that's taught in our institutions of higher learning that is a science falsely so-called? Evolution. They call evolution a science? It is a hallucination. It is a hallucination by a pitiful man who couldn't rule his spirit named Charles Darwin. Remember, brethren, you don't have to go to the library now to read about Charles Darwin. Just plug in Charles Darwin Finch. And you can find out about poor Charles. He kept dropping out of school until he went on a five-year vacation. And on a five-year vacation, laying around watching birds on his vacation, he saw some minor differences between finches. And he looked at those minor differences between finches and he thought he would write a novel 
about the origin of species. And he figured that because he saw variations in finches, that sometimes elephants want to become hummingbirds. And so over a few years, elephants become hummingbirds, and monkeys become men, and salamanders become eagles. That is science, falsely so-called. There's no science in it. It, They are the hallucinations of an idiot. Now, making a statement like that is, is so harsh to our society today. When he first came out, everyone talked about it that way. Except other atheistic pagan infidels. But to talk that way sounds so foolishly arrogant. That's why I sent you this week the little child story written by Hans Christian Andersen 150 years ago called The Emperor's New Clothes. Because I wanted you to read that little story. Someone needs to be a child and stand up and say, The Emperor doesn't have any clothes on. Elephants don't become hummingbirds. Salamanders don't become eagles. Protoplasmic gelatin floating through the universe doesn't make an earth. Amen. It's amazing. They ridicule scientists today and your little science teachers that you had in the third grade, sixth grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, earth science. Remember some of those classes you took? They ridicule the ignorance of man in the days of Columbus. Columbus had figured out, along with many men before him who had read the Bible, that the earth was round and that he'd be able to sail as long as he wanted to sail, and he might be able to find a short route to the Indies. But they didn't want to let him sail because they thought the earth was flat, and that when he got to the edge, he'd fall off it, and he and his ships would be lost, and so the crown would be out some money for three ships. Our science teachers make fun of people so dumb they thought the earth was flat. And then in their next breath, they want us to believe that there was a big explosion in the universe and matter exploding resulted in the earth and its beauty and order and design. Now tell me which person is dumber. They both have no light. It's incredible. They want us to believe that. They want us to believe that some little salamander decided that it was tired of living in the muck and so it crawled out one day and stood up on its back legs and shook itself and Pretty soon it was a college student at UCLA. They want us to believe that, but they make fun of 500 years ago men thinking the earth was flat. Well, the Bible has a few things to say. You want to look at the earth? Look at Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22. What does the Bible say? Now, Isaiah was written 700 B.C. That was approximately 2,200 years before Columbus. You say Copernicus figured it out? Yeah, but that was 1,700 years after Columbus. Isaiah 40 and verse 22. Look at it, speaks of God. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. And where does that circular earth hang? Does it rest on the back of a monster? Is it, up, it's, is it on the top of some mountain? Job 26 and verse 7, here is Job speaking about God. He stretcheth out the north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. The earth is a circular earth hanging upon nothing. It's floating in space. And we, you know, it took us until, what was it, 19, 
69 when we finally got a man on the moon that could look back and see that blue ball hanging on nothing. Well, they finally got there. And they figured out that God had spoken about it all the time because he created it and hung it there. Let's look at a few other examples. Look at Psalm 90. Psalm 90. This one is so simple. And you've, you've heard me refer to it before. But brethren, I love simple ones. Psalm 90. What is the average life expectancy of a human man? Let's read it. When was this written? If we give David credit for it, which the psalm is credited to Moses, if we give David credit for it, it was 1000 B.C. If we give Moses credit for it, it was 1500 B.C. How do we know Moses wrote it? We don't know for sure because we don't believe the superscriptions were inspired, but if you have a little superscription in your Bible over Psalm 90, it says a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Either one, it doesn't matter. It was still 3,000 years ahead of its time. Psalm 90 in verse 10. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. The soul flies away out of the body after 70 or 80 years. Now what do we want to apply the weight? Some people are average strength and some are strong. Those of average strength live to be 70. Those that are strong live to be 80. How do we want to weight these? You want to say two-thirds of the population are average and one-third's exceptional so that we get an average life expectancy of 73 or 74? Is that what you want to do? Sure. Something around 74? Isn't that precious? Do you know how many computers are put to work every day in this country and how many actuarials sit around and try to figure out the average life expectancy of man? Now, brethren, we've got hospitals. And we've got GNC stores in every mall. And we've got vaccinations. And we've got good medicine. And we've got health clubs. And we don't eat as much fat. And we've got Diet Coke. And how long does man live? How long does he live? 74. It hasn't changed. God wrote the Bible. God wrote the Bible because how could any man know that? Do you know what the average life expectancy was of every other nation but Israel when this was written based on the best history we, historical evidence we have? About 22. Listen, if you live like the Canaanites did, practicing bestiality and then coming home, brethren, things happen to people. That's why God told Israel, if you'll keep all my commandments, I'll keep all the diseases of Egypt away from you. Do you know how old the man was that wrote this? Moses lived to be 120. Do you know how long his father lived? 137. Do you know how long his grandfather lived? 133. Do you know how long his successor lived? 110. That was Joshua. And do you know what he wrote? He wrote that man's days are three score and ten, and if by reason of strength they might be four score. God wrote the Bible. God wrote the Bible, brethren. In a nation that practices... The, the elements of Moses' law that pertain to diet, some ele- elements of diet, sanitation, quarantine, and other effects will live to be 74 years of age on average. The average life expectancy of man. The Bible nailed it down, worst case, 1,000 B.C. And it wasn't 74 in nations that don't follow Bible principles of sanitation, diet, 
and quarantine. It isn't that in our country. I mean, it isn't that in our world. There are whole sections of continents that have a life expectancy of 30. Yet in this world, now how did, how did God know, I mean, how did the Bible know that when a man follows good rules for health and diet and living, that his, the optimal length of life for a human being is 74? And I don't care what books you read about life extension, brethren. This is the word of God, and it's true. Amen. And we put our trust in the God that wrote it. Right. I love Psalm 90 and verse 10. You can read about all the different studies that have been done in the because you know everybody's afraid of dying, especially pagans, and so they've they've done enormous studies on it. And there the Bible is answering it long ago because God told them, brethren, why did God pick the eighth day for circumcision? Why did God pick the eighth day for circumcision? Why wasn't the first day, the eighteenth day, or on his eighteenth birthday when he got to vote? Why was it the eighth day? You can go read the Bible and you'll find very specifically that God wanted it done on the eighth day. Most Abraham did it on the eighth day. 2000 B.C. Moses did it on the eighth day, 1500 B.C. David did it 1000 B.C. And John the Baptist and Jesus were, baptized, were circumcised. Boy, that's a dangerous heresy to confuse the word baptism with circumcision. But we're going to leave it right there because that was a slip of the tongue. That's what every Presbyterian wants us to slip up with all the time. Right. That baptism and circumcision are the same or, or related to each other. But John the Baptist and Jesus were circumcised on the eighth day. In 1935, a doctor quick, studying the compounds that clot the blood, discovered a substance called prothrombin and vitamin K, two substances that cause the blood to clot, and how that a newborn baby, when the newborn baby is born, has his mother's clotting compounds in his blood for the first 24 hours or so. But for days two through four, a baby can hemorrhage to death very easily. To counteract that danger that we've now discovered, we give them vitamin K shots to activate the clotting compounds earlier. But beginning about the third or fourth day when the mother's milk comes in and they then have something in their intestines which results in bacteria, which results in the production of prothrombin and vitamin K, a baby's clotting compounds begin to rise rapidly and reach adult levels at day seven. But because it's on such a rapid growth in those compounds, the eighth day, your clotting compounds are higher than any day of your life at 110% of their regular level. This is admitted by all doctors who have studied it, pagans that have no interest in proving the Bible. And I want to tell you that God picked the eighth day for circumcision on a newborn baby before they had vitamin K shots because he knew that. Amen. And we use, listen, science, to me, the most exciting thing about it is not that we get to give babies vitamin K shots, but to prove that God wrote the Bible. Amen. Because he knew that. Listen, there's a lot of days between the day a child's born and the day he turns 20. There's 7,200 days. Why don't they circumcise many other? Why did God pick the eighth day? Well, isn't that just a sweet little blessing that God put in the Bible? And, and this is well known by Bible believers who have searched the Bible looking for God's evidence that he wrote it. Look at Psalm 104. Psalm 104. I 
could keep you here for several days on this point on, on scientific evidence in the Bible alone. But you can go to the outline, and there's a whole lot of hyperlinks built into it where you can go read them yourselves. I've had great pleasure reading about the Word of God. I, I love it, and I want you to love it, and I want us to defend it, and most of all, to obey it. Amen. Because that's where its greatest blessing comes. Psalm 104, verse 14. He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle and herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth. Psalm 104, 14. And wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. I want to point out to you right there that there's some nutritional value in Psalm 104, 14 and 15. Food comes out of the earth. Food comes out of the earth, and it comes out of the earth because of God. And he gives you three categories of food. And some of these we haven't figured out until the last 50 years. We have not figured out that bread makes strong the heart of man until the last 50 years with the realization that the complex carbohydrates and fiber in bread are essential to our health. And so we call it the the bread of life and and the staff of life. And here it is in the Word of God that it makes strong the heart of man. And if you were to read a good book written by doctors on healthy hearts and make sure they're pagan doctors, they will tell you that bread especially whole wheat bread, especially stone ground whole wheat bread, not this highly processed stuff that rats wouldn't even eat, but real bread makes strong the heart of man because it's got B vitamins in it and vitamin E in it, which has been known for the last hundred years now to help hearts. But it's here in the word of God that bread makes strong the heart of man and it was written 1000 B.C. Oil to make his face to shine. When you're taking your vitamin E or eating lots of fish, are you able to stand in a mirror and do this and see that oil makes your face to shine? And so here we have in the Word of God encouragement for us to eat the essential fatty acids that are necessary for human health. Did you know that not all fat is bad? There are two fats your body has to have for optimal health, and they're called essential fatty acids, and when you're eating enough of them, It causes your face to shine. Brethren, this isn't topical appointment of olive oil. Do you know how I know that? Because it says in verse 14, he brings forth food out of the earth. This is something you eat. Some of you are looking at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. When you take a little too much vitamin E, what happens to your face? Are you able to see the vitamin E? Oh, no. Everybody's going to come tonight, and if I turn the lights on you, you're all going to shine because you're going to go home and try extra vitamin E. But it does. It'll come out in your skin. And it'll tell you that you're taking enough, because if you're dry, you're not taking enough. You're not getting enough oils in your diet. And and there's essential fatty acids that the body has to have to live on. But let's not worry about nutrition any further than to see Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15, that it's explained there. And you know, do you know what most Bible believers have done a hundred years ago in this nation? They condemned the use of alcoholic beverages. And I want to say that God knows better than the temperance movement by saying that wine makes glad the heart of man. And if you have a diet of essential fatty acids and good bread to make strong your heart, and you use wine once in a while to make your heart glad, that is optimal eating. 
You can throw in a few other verses. Let's get a steak to join it. Because do you know what a steak is? It's just a whole lot of bread. Do you know how much grass a cow eats before you get a pound of steak? About a ton. So instead of having a salad, why don't you eat some steak? You know how you, you get a ton of salad by eating one pound of steak. The cow just did it for you. And he's got a better stomach to digest grass. And the reason I harp on this subject is because I love the Bible this much. No one in the Bible ever put grass in a bowl and called it a meal. Amen. They never did that in the Bible. Right. You say, but they exercised back then. Yes, and the Bible told us to do that. Do you know what it says in 1 Timothy 4, 8? Bodily exercise profiteth little. Now, listen, it's not a ridicule of bodily exercise. It's just a comparison that in comparison to spiritual exercise, it's less. Right. But exercise is taught in 1 Timothy 4, 8. Do you know what they tell us the biggest health concern in our nation is? Turn to Proverbs 23 and we'll see God correcting it in 1000 B.C. Proverbs chapter 23. Do you know the single most important thing nutritionally, diet-wise, that you can do to live longer, based on their knowledge, the single most important thing, and I'll give you any number, of, any number of sources that you want for this, is to eat less than you want. They've taken rats many times. They've given rats all they can eat. You know, just a, a, a never-ending supply of food, and they've given rats a limited amount that is less than they would normal, than they would eat, than the ones would eat that had unlimited food. And when you eat less than you really want to get that bloated, full feeling at the end of American meals, they live longer. Obesity is the number one problem in America, health-wise. But look what the Bible told, taught us, and no one preaches on this anymore, because if we preached on it, we'd have trouble going to Ryan's and doing what we do sometimes, and I don't, we shouldn't laugh about it. We've got to be careful before the holy God, because there's wisdom in keeping all of his commandments. Look at Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 20. Be not among wine-bibbers. That's a drunkard. That's not just someone who drinks a little wine. This is someone drinking enough wine that it's, what do you want to say, running down his chin, he needs a bib. He's called a wine-bibber. He's a drunkard. Among riotous eaters of flesh, for the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. A drunkard and a glutton are put in the same category in God's Word, and if we were more careful about our diet, we'd have optimal health. But there it is in the Bible, 1000 B.C., correcting a problem that exists in America in 2001. Look at Luke chapter 7 and verse 23. Uh, did I say Luke? I meant Leviticus. Leviticus, I'm sorry. Leviticus chapter 7. Our grandparents grew up eating so much fat, and they lived right health, generally healthy lives, but they ate a lot of fat. And so now we have doctors telling us that an overconsumption of saturated fats is not good for our health. And the Bible taught that in 1500 B.C. Watch this. Leviticus, there's more verses than this one, but I'm just going to give you one. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 23, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Ye shall eat no manner of fat, of ox, or of sheep, or of goat. And there's other verses just like it. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have a steak that's got fat marbled in the meat because God made that fat to go into the meat. But when you open up, a, when you open up cattle and you're butchering them, the fat was to be offered as a burnt sacrifice to God. It was not to be eaten. 
There's a warning in the Word of God in 1500 B.C. to avoid the consumption of fat. There's enough fat in the meat. And yes, 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 they had stalled oxes. You know, people will say, well, now we just put cows in a pen and we don't let them move and we feed them all we can to get them. Yes, they did that in the Bible. Right. It's called a stalled ox. That's an ox that's being held in his stall so that he'll put on weight and he'll marble his meat with fats. The baby, when you cook that filet, it is awesome. Like the one we had a couple weeks ago at City Range. Amen. You want to cut that out of some buffalo that's had to run for its life? across the Great Plains, you'll need four hours to get it down. God, but God warns about fat. I, I just want to show you how the wisdom that is in the Bible, 1,500 years B.C. How many of you have ever had cats and dogs at the same time? How many of you got dats or cogs? Did your, did your dogs and cats ever try to reproduce and did you end up with a dat or a cog? Those of you who've had horses and cows, have you ever seen a how or a course? How about goats and sheep? Any geep or shoats? Why? Because the Bible told us in chapter 1, you can't even get started in your Bible reading before you read that everything is going to bring forth after its kind. And there is a rule laid down the Bible, and there is manuscript evidence for ancient... The, that, that, the writings of Moses have been held by the Jews for thousands of years. And there it is telling us that there is no such thing as Charles Darwin imagines. And you can't get them to cross those lines. There are lines within there are lines of kinds, and within kinds, you can get all sorts of breeds, but you can't get them to cross the line. Right. Nothing happens. By the way, let me just chase this one. Mo Moses, Noah did not have to take 400 breeds of dogs onto, Noah, onto his ark. Right. All he needed was a genetically strong dog, and when it got off the dark, we've got all the, when it got off the ark, we have all the breeds that we have. Amen. Some of the breeds are very recent. I love men who are able to figure out how to breed within a kind and make neat dogs. I love the Doberman Pinscher. It's only 100 years old. A butcher in Germany made the Doberman Pinscher. Now all Doberman Pinschers are purebred, if you have papers on them, and so they keep reproducing Doberman Pinschers. Well, somebody saw the Doberman Pinscher and liked the look of that thick-chested, intelligent-looking dog with its small greyhound rear end and its dock tail and said, I'd love that dog six inches tall. So they bred the miniature Pinscher. And now we've got little miniature pinchers running around that look as ferocious as the big ones, but they're only six inches tall. Now that's breeding dogs, but you can't get a dog and a cat together. And you can't get a cat and a rabbit together for a cabot or a rat. There's rats already. You can't do it. And all of it is proof because God wrote a long time ago it can't be done. Because he made it that way. We'd have really messed stuff up. I mean, if we've got miniature pinchers within a kind, what would we do if we could cross kinds? There's miniature horses, too. That's just God letting man be creative within a kind. Oh, there's so much, brethren. There's, I don't want to... There's so much. You read in Amos chapter 5 and verse 8 about the seven-starred constellation, about comparing Amos with Job. You know that Pleiades is under consideration, right. and the seventh star of Pleiades can't be seen without a telescope. How did they know in 
500 B.C. that Pleiades had seven stars in it. Because God made Pleiades. God likes his constellations. Job brags about him in the book of Job a couple of different times. Chapter 9, chapter 31, the, the, the constellations are bragged about there. How did they ever know that there were seven stars in Pleiades when no man can see it with his naked eye? They've just recently discovered that seventh star. Where, what is the life of your body, and where is it? Where is it flowing? It's flowing in your blood. Is that a new discovery? The circulatory system is not all that old in its discovery and understanding by man, but you can go all the way back to Leviticus 1500 B.C., and God said, the life of the flesh is flowing in the blood. Amen. Now, is that important? Just slow down. Is it important to know that your life is flowing in your blood? Let me ask you a question. How did the first president of our enlightened nation die? He came home with a sore throat. And doctors successively bled him all day. And they bled him to death. Because they thought the way to health was to get rid of the bad spirits in your blood by letting your blood out. That was just 200 years ago in our greatly enlightened nation. The best doctors dealing with our president bled him to death. The last doctor that took the last court, the last doctor that took the last court, did it against the the desires of all the other doctors there who had bled him all day. They already knew how much they had taken. But brethren, the answer to that was 1500 B.C. He came home with a sore throat and he died because they bled him to death. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Did you know that as recently as World War II, they would not allow black blood to be transfused into white soldiers or white blood into black soldiers? Now, there's a doctor that figured that out, that there was no difference between the bloods of black men or white men if you had the same blood type. But that wasn't until World War II. Do you know when the Bible told us that? Paul told us in Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill, God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. Now, who wrote the Bible? They want to tell me men sat around and dreamed all this stuff up? There's an explanation about all... Listen, superstitions about the races were strong, that the blood was different. And their God is saying that the blood is the same in all nations of men, and now we find it out. Did you know that if we practiced... Leviticus morality, there wouldn't be sexually transmitted diseases. If there were monogamous and faithful marriages and capital punishment for sexual sins, how many sexually transmitted diseases would there be? Have they recently discovered mental illness? How much mental illness would be taken away if men would learn about the peace and love that comes from knowing God? I read it. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to hurry now. I read in 1 John chapter 4 that perfect love casts out fear because where fear is, there is... Come on. Do you know the passage? Torment. 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 That is mental illness. Perfect love casts out fear, and fear has torment. And there are people that are truly tormented, but it's because they don't love. The cure is learning how to love, and it's by the grace of God first and by His Word second. And the peace of God that passes all understanding by putting our trust and confidence in God regardless of circumstances. The psychosomatic illnesses, psycho, 
mean, means from the mind. Somatic is body. Psychosomatic illnesses are physical maladies caused by a mind that's going wacko. Does the Bible know about that? A merry heart doeth good like a medicine. In the Bible, 1000 B.C., God wrote the Bible, brethren. That's what I'm trying to say. God wrote the Bible. Did you know that in the Bible, to get clean, you were to wash your hands under running water? Right. Washing your hands under running water. In the mid-1800s, that's only 150 years ago, if you went to a hospital to deliver a baby, you had a very high probability of dying. Because the doctors there, if there wasn't a woman giving birth, were overworking on some dead cadaver trying to figure out why he did die. When the woman came in to give birth, they'd go from the dead cadaver to delivering the baby. And the woman's in a very vulnerable position at childbirth. And so the death rates for women delivering in hospitals in Budapest, Hungary, and Vienna, Austria, in the mid-1800s was 30 or 40% of any woman that went to the hospital. You say, why would any woman go? Because the poor women had to if they wanted any assistance in their birth. Along comes a Jewish doctor who knows about this under running water. His name is Ignaz Semmelweis, and you can read all you want to about him, written by pagan educators because they practically worship the man. He required the doctors under his care to wash their hands before they touched a woman. And immediately the death rate disappeared. Don't trust me. Go to your internet. Click in Ignaz Semmelweis. I'll give you the spelling. <laughs> and you can read it. It's incredible. They, they, they worship him practically in our modern medical schools because of what he did. He was driven out of his job, and he went crazy in an insane asylum for being rejected all of his life that the washing of hands is what was saving lives. Right. 150 years ago, in the book of Leviticus, God wrote that you're to wash your hands in running water. Leviticus 15. And brethren, they didn't have taps. Right. I held it for you, and you washed, and you held it for me, and I washed. You just wash your hands in a bucket of water, it's not good enough, is it? What are you going to pull out with? Running water. Leviticus 15, verse 13, When he that hath an issue is cleansed of his issue, then he shall number to himself seven days for his cleansing, and wash his clothes, and bathe his flesh in running water, and shall be clean. Are you... This is 1500 B.C. No wonder God told Israel, If you'll keep all my commandments and my statutes, I'll bring on you none of the diseases of Egypt. Because you start practicing cleanliness like that from touching... Listen, did, did God know that to touch a dead body, you had to go wash and be unclean for a while? A dead animal. On and on the list goes that you had to wash. And you start practicing things like that, and all of a sudden you're not getting the diseases that the Egyptians got. And it's all written in the Bible, 1500 B.C. What kind of wisdom was around Moses at the time he wrote those words? The, the wisdom of Egypt. Do you have a splinter? Then take a little bit of goat urine. I'm being kind. Take some goat urine. Take some human excrement. Mix it with some boiled bull hooves and rub it on your wound. Wait seven days and it should be gone. Well, wait seven days, you won't have to worry about your splinter. You'll have tetanus. That was the kind of wisdom which makes the Bible so unique and so incredibly powerful because Egypt was the wisest nation on earth at the time, 
But look at what kind of wisdom they had and the kind of wisdom that little nation of Israel had because God gave them a book. Right. And he wrote it. It's precious. Amen. The sanitation. The bubonic plague that spread in Europe so fast was because people threw their trash in the streets. Where, what did you do with a chamber pot 200 years ago? Unless you were a king, you threw it out the window. It ran the street. You're, you're saying no way would people live like that. Absolutely they lived like that. The chamber pot in the morning went out the window. It went in the street and it ran the gutter. And so there was sewer running everywhere and there was rats running everywhere. But in the Jewish segments of the cities of Europe during the bubonic plague, they weren't getting it. And so they were accused by the Gentiles of per perpetrating the disease. Since they weren't getting it, they must be the ones causing it. But it wasn't. Be they knew laws of sanitation because of verses like Deuteronomy 14. Amen. Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23. I can give you more names, more hyperlinks, and you can go read it for yourselves. Sanitation. You know, we, America is blessed with great health because we're able to push a little silver button and it takes it outside and buries it. Now, where'd the idea come from of burying it and not letting it flow back into our drinking water? Beautiful. Deuteronomy 23, verse 12. Deuteronomy 23, 12. Thou shalt have a place also without the camp, whither thou shalt go forth abroad. That's a euphemism. Okay? Yeah. That means something nasty put in gentle terminology. And thou shalt have a paddle upon thy weapon. A paddle. What's a paddle going to look like? What would we call it today? A shovel. A shovel. Thou shalt have a shovel upon thy weapon, and it shall be when thou wilt ease thyself abroad, thou shalt dig therewith and shalt turn back and cover that which cometh from thee. That's pretty plain, isn't it? For the Lord thy God walketh in the midst of thy camp to deliver thee and to give up thine enemies before thee. Therefore shall thy camp be holy, that he see no unclean thing in thee and turn away from thee. Brethren, 1500 B.C., 200 years ago in our blessed England, they dumped chamber pots in the street. I don't know if she's blessed or not. You know what I meant. Stainless steel, medical instruments. I say they were invented in 1500 B.C. Turn to Leviticus chapter 6. Have you noticed that everything in your doctor's office is stainless steel now? Yep. Have you noticed that? Leviticus chapter 6. We're looking at why we know God wrote the Bible. Because stainless steel instruments were not used until very recent time. Leviticus 6 and verse 28. We're talking about unclean things here being put on vessels. But the earthen vessel wherein it is sodden shall be broken. An earthen vessel would have been made from clay. It'd be a piece of pottery. Why would they have to break it? If something unclean touched it, why would you have to break it? Because it is porous. That means it has little holes, smaller than you can see, but it absorbs infections, germs, and bacteria, which were unknown, unidentified, until the mid-19th century. Anything porous had to be broken. And if it be sodden in a brazen pot... It shall be both scoured and rinsed in water. What do they do today? Scour it and rinse it in water, and it's ready for the next use. That is 1500 B.C. 
That's not the only reference. That's enough about science. What about social science? Are there, are there any benefits to social science found in the Bible that we're, we're still struggling with today? How about the family? Is that a decent unit? Are they having problems today in our society because families aren't being emphasized? Who made the family? And how long ago was it laid down in writing? Who wrote the Bible? God did. Should parents be supported by their children or should the state do it? Children should take care of their parents. Is that a pretty good rule of social science? That when the old get old and can't take care of themselves any longer, that children have an obligation to take care of their parents? Is restitution better than prison? If someone steals something and they had to pay it back four times as a slave until it was paid back, would that be better than putting them in a daycare with a TV and a weight room and three squares a day, which is probably the first time they've had three squares? Restitution is a whole lot better than prison. Look at the social science wisdom of the Word of God. Is marriage superior to casual sex and temporary relationships? Is child discipline carefully defined and encouraged by the Bible, whereas modern psychologists don't know what to do except to prescribe drugs? Is tithing to support the poor a pretty good idea rather than the government taking it and losing most of it? How about gleaning for the poor? If you're going to tithe and give them a gift, are they supposed to provide for some of their food? And how do they get it? By going and gleaning the corners of fields. What a blessing, brethren. What a blessing. It's all in the Word of God. Unbelievable. I hope you enjoyed that. Amen. Now, I didn't, I didn't preach that to you for your natural man to enjoy it. Right. I want your spirit to love what you have in your hands. Amen. I fear that we have too many of them sitting around at home and take the Word of God too casually. We need to be reading it, and when we, when we open it, just realize that on that page, I don't care where you open it, on that page there is wisdom. Amen. There is understanding and there is light that the world has never seen before. It's wrapped up in the Bible because God, the infinite wisdom of the universe, has written it to us. It reveals Him. It tells us about ourselves. And look it. Do you know what book we've, we've turned to today? The book we like the least, Leviticus. <laughs> is there wisdom in Leviticus? Lots Amen. of wisdom in Leviticus. Right. And if a nation were to practice everything that's written in the book of Leviticus, you ought to go read chapters 18 and 20 with the laws of consanguinity and see if God is not very careful in defining proper and improper relationships and ruling out bestiality, sodomy, incest, all of it's condemned in those two chapters. Carefully laid out, if if a people were to live by the book of Leviticus, which is our least favorite book in the Bible, they would be most blessed. God wrote it. It answers dilemmas that we're still trying to solve in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And most of the dilemmas were not solved until the last couple centuries. Unknown wisdom was in the Word of God. God wrote the Bible. We know it because there were things written 3,000 years ago that only recently have we discovered and confirmed ourselves, which shows that there was a divine author that told us those things before we figured them out ourselves. Right. The beauty of Psalm 119 is that it lifts up the Word of God like I've tried to lift it up to you today. But throughout Psalm 119 are prayers. Open it to me that I might keep it, that I might run in the way of thy commandments. There is wisdom in all of his commandments. Every one of us has a deceitful heart 
And Satan comes after us in different ways to find those commandments we want to keep the least. And so we think that if I keep that commandment, that's going to cost me too much. I want to tell you, if you don't keep that commandment, it's going to cost you too much. We want to run in the way of all of God's commandments. Don't you dare pick favorites. Don't you dare resist or resent any of God's commandments. All of them should be binding on our lives, and cheerfully so, because there's wisdom in them. God said, these commandments and statutes and precepts which I give you this day are for your good always. They are your life. They are your righteousness. And brethren, not only that, forgetting our natural lives, this book tells us, and my last point, number 22, is going to be the person of the book. Amen. The person of the book. Instead of learning about Moroni or Joseph Smith or Mohammed, do you know what the Bible tells us about? A man named Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Is there plenty of historical evidence for Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Absolutely. The Bible just tells us what he taught and what he did and what he did for us. The Bible is a wonderful book. I want you to love it and I want you to read it. May God bless your pastor and may God bless every one of you to read the Bible and to study it and to love it more than we ever have before. May Jesus Christ be praised.